Hey, I'm Jesse. Let's have a devotion. In today's text, you're going to see why so many of these people in the land of Canaan, these little individual quasi-monarchical city-nation states under the leadership of some sort of like martial law imposed by a military-style king, would all pick a fight with Israel. Even though, as we learned from Rahab, they knew about the miraculous parting of the Red Sea. They knew about Israel's victories over Sihon and Og. And now they knew about Israel's victories over Jericho and then Ai, just but with this one qualifier. Ooh, they did experience defeat briefly there. That does seem to rally them, but today's text is going to reveal the sovereignty of God even behind the hardness of the hearts of those who waged war against Israel. Prepare yourself. If you are not accustomed to seeing passages that explain the sovereignty of God, then this is going to be a shock to you. Joshua chapter 11, verse 16. So Joshua took all this land, the hill country, all the Negev, all the land of Goshen, the foothills, the Arabah, and the hill country of Israel with its foothills from Mount Halak, which ascends to Seir, as far as uh, Baal Gad in the valley of Lebanon at the foot of Mount Hermon. He captured all their kings and struck them down, putting them to death. Joshua waged war with all these kings for a long time. So remember, in previous, the last two devotions, everything happened really quickly over, over a short period of time. But now this zooms out to describe a longer uh, a longer time period because our curriculum covers verses 1 through 15. No city made peace with the Israelites except the Hivites who inhabited Gibeon. All of them were taken in battle. So the, the Girgashites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Amorites, all these, all of these Gentile nations had waged war, but the Hivites were the one who made peace with Israel. Now, verse 20 explains in the big picture why. For it was the Lord's intention to harden their hearts so that they would engage Israel in battle, be completely destroyed without mercy, and be annihilated just as the Lord had commanded Moses. There it is. This is why. We look at Rahab's story and we see how she believed upon God. She forsook her pagan gods, and she becomes a part of the people of Israel, along with her whole family. In fact, she becomes a part of the lineage of Christ. And so you're like, man, why aren't there more of those stories in the conquest of Canaan? I mean, Rahab became assimilated into the chosen people of God based on way less information than the residents of Lachish and Makeda and Hebron all these other peoples just saw Israel coming, and they saw Israel just defeat their enemies, 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 and now they're at your doorstep. Rahab saw this coming after just two victories and rumors of a miraculous parted Red Sea. I mean, the defeats of Og and Sihon, those were a long way off. Now they're across the Jordan, they're in the land of Canaan, and they're experiencing victory after victory after victory after victory. All of these people, the last city defeated, had more information than any of the ones that came before them. And Rahab had way less information than any of the residents of the, of the last cities conquered. So why aren't there more stories like Rahab's? Well, it's because, according to verse 20, God intended for this to happen. He intended for their hearts to be hardened so that they would engage Israel in battle. 
So this is why, this is why there are fewer accounts of Rahab-like conversions in the conquest of Israel. It's because God hardened their hearts to cause them to face Israel in battle. Israel then, by the way, suffers no casualties except for those at Ai because of sin, right, uh, and the conquest of Jericho, that they would be completely destroyed without mercy, okay, because in, in, in my view, the mercy was the 400 years prior that they had to repent of the, the sins cataloged in Leviticus 18 and be annihilated just as the Lord had commanded Moses. And we've seen this, uh, like the last verses of, of this week's curriculum text describe how Joshua adhered to what God said. Everything that was passed on to Moses, Joshua carried out. And that includes the annihilation of these little city-states that were hardened by God. Let's talk about this, but first let's finish the text. At that time, Joshua proceeded to exterminate the Anakim. So this is this is a long-standing, uh, this is this is this this is a comeuppance against uh something that holds over even from the days of the flood. The, the Nephilim, you know, are, are part of the reason for the flood, and then their descendants, uh, the Anakites, had lived throughout the land of Canaan. This is partly what freaked the first generation out. Uh, they believed that they were seeing these giants across the water, that they're descended from the Nephilim. All right, so we almost exterminate the, the Anakim from the hill country, Hebron, Debir, and Edeb. Uh, all the hill country of Judah and of Israel. Joshua completely destroyed them with their cities. No Anakim were left in the land of the Israelites except for some remaining in Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod. That's why I say we almost completely settled this score, but this was a comeuppance against uh, a people uh, you know, uh, for whom you know God had proclaimed his coming wrath for uh, now two generations of Israelites. So Joshua took the entire land in keeping with all that the Lord had told Moses. Joshua then gave it as an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments. After this, the land had rest from war. Now, if you're like many readers, particularly readers who didn't come from like a Reformed background, uh, a church that, that holds to more, more Calvinist views, uh, you're not familiar with this. You might even feel the cognitive dissonance setting in. You're like, I can read and I know that that says what it says, but I'm having a hard time dealing with this because I'm not acquainted with passages that just so overtly describe the sovereignty of God at work. The truth is, this is Scripture and whatever is in our hearts needs to change. We don't change Scripture to fit our feelings. We change our feelings so that they are accurate as per the Word of God. This is what God did. And if that shocks you, it's because your understanding of God is incomplete. God has the right to do this, and we don't have the right to talk back to Him about this. Romans 9, verse 14 through 18, God's selection is just. Now, I have a sermon on this. It's in the series on JCM's YouTube channel titled, How Christians Are Made. I do think that this passage gets misused by a lot of Calvinists, and I'm not just saying that, I'm not just saying that in a generality. I've sat under more than one sermon by a Calvinist preacher who completely botched Romans 9. All that I did to correct it was actually read the text that Paul quotes. It's clear God selects the descendants of Jacob over the descendants of Esau. He chose Israel and he despises 
Edom. There's an entire book of the Bible explaining why God despises Edom. It's the book of Obadiah, the least studied book in the whole Bible. And it's coming up in JCM's study plan. What should we say then? Is there injustice with God? Absolutely not. For he tells Moses, I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it does not depend on human will or effort, but on God who shows mercy. God showed mercy to Rahab. It was his prerogative to annihilate every resident of Jericho. But he saved one and her family. Who's going to correct God when he declines mercy? Mercy is something that is not deserved. Grace is something that is not earned. If grace were earned, it would cease to be grace. It would be transactionally fair. But God shows mercy to Rahab and to her family. For Scripture tells Pharaoh, we're going to look at where this comes from biblically in the book of Exodus. For the Scripture tells Pharaoh, I raised you up, Pharaoh, for this reason, so that I might display my power in you and that my name may be proclaimed in the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. And you and I, as mere sinners, have no authority by which we can question God on this. So God has hardened the hearts of many in these city-states throughout Canaan so that they would fight Israel, so that they would be destroyed. God hardened their hearts, and that is his prerogative to do so. See Romans chapter 9. Here's what Romans 9 is talking about. We see the plagues of Egypt, and they're not they're not random. This is something that I had uh, a, a graphic designer make up, I think back in like 20, wow, this must, that was 2014 or 2015. Um, the Nile River is turned into blood in Exodus 7, 14 through 25. There's a plague of frogs in Exodus 8, 1 through 15, and then gnats in 16 through 19, the swarm of flies um, in Exodus 8, 20 through 32, the death of the livestock in Exodus 9, 1 through 7, the plague of boils in Exodus 9, 8 through 12, the plague of hail in Exodus 9, 13 through 35, the plague of locusts in Exodus 10, 1 through 20, the plague of darkness in Exodus 10, 21 through 29, and then the death of the firstborn in Exodus uh, 11, 4 through 12, 42. These plagues were not random. They demonstrated the impotence of the Egyptian pantheon. There's there, there were the Egyptian gods of the Nile, Osiris, Nu, and Hapi. Evidently, they were unable to stop the plague of the blood. There's the Egyptian god Hecate, who had like the head of a frog. And evidently, Hecate was unable to stop the plague of the frogs. There's the Egyptian god uh, Geb, or Jeb, and that's the, the earth god, unable to stop the plague of the gnats. The swarm of flies could have been stopped by the Egyptian god Kefir, uh, as the resurrection God depicted as, as a beetle, if Kefir only existed. Uh, the Egyptian gods Apis, Hathor, and Isis are all associated with livestock, and they couldn't stop the plague of the livestock. Uh, the, the Egyptian god Amun-Re, Thoth, Imhotep from, uh, from the mummy movies. Uh, there's another one coming up uh, from those movies. And Sekhmet were unable to stop the plague of boils because they're all associated with healing. There are numerous Egyptian gods that could have stopped the, the plague of hail if only they existed. And the Egyptian gods mean Isis, Nepri, Anubis, also from the mummy movies, and uh, Senehem were all associated with the fields, and they couldn't stop the plague of the locusts as the locusts devoured the fields. Amun-Ra is also associated with the sun, and then Pharaoh himself thought of himself as, as, uh, as 
as associated with the son in a divine divine sense, thought of himself as uh, as a god. But the, but but Amon Re and Pharaoh were unable to stop the plague of the darkness, and then finally the death of the firstborn was judgment on all the gods of Egypt, including Pharaoh's son, and also a form of comeuppance for what Israel uh, what Egypt had done to Israel prior, and also foreshadowing the death of God's son on the cross. Now. Here is, uh, it's not, it doesn't have the same kind of artistic treatment, but here's, here's just like a simple Google, uh, Google table that I made showing which of these plagues came when God hardened Pharaoh's heart and which ones came when Pharaoh's heart was hardened of his own volition. The water turned to blood. Pharaoh's heart was hardened of his own volition, Exodus 7.22. So Pharaoh's heart was hard, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned around, went into his palace, and didn't even take this to heart. All right, so uh, this disproves the Egyptian god of, of Hapi. Uh, and the plague of frogs, Exodus 8.1-15. through 15. Pharaoh's heart was hardened on his own volition. Exodus 8.15 reads, But when Pharaoh saw there was relief, he hardened his heart. It would not listen to them as the Lord had said. The plague of gnats in Exodus 8, 19. This is the finger of God, the magician said to Pharaoh, but Pharaoh's heart was hard and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. So God knew that he would not listen. His heart is already hardened of his own volition. And the swarm of flies, Exodus 8, 32 says, but Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and ultimately did not let the people go. Uh, the death of the livestock. Exodus 9, 7, the second sentence, but Pharaoh's heart was hard and he did not let the people go. The plague of boils, this changes things. This is where, you know, Isis and uh, was it Imhotep, uh, you know, they're unable to heal the people. Exodus 9, 12, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he did not listen to them as the Lord had told Moses. This is what, this is what Romans 9 is referring to. We've seen in the plagues how so far, every plague, Pharaoh's heart was hardened of his own volition. And now God, as is his sovereign right, has hardened Pharaoh's heart. But then the next plague, the plague of hail, Exodus 9.34, when Pharaoh saw that the rain, hail, and thunder had ceased, he sinned again and hardened his heart, he and his officials. So now everybody's corporately in on this. Then the next plague... The eighth plague, the plague of locusts, Exodus 10.1, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his officials, so that I may do these miraculous signs of mine among them. All right, in verse 20, But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. He did not let the Israelites go. Then the plague of darkness, Exodus 10.27, But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he was unwilling to let them go. All right, uh, this, this is also the second time, the first being the second plague, that Pharaoh actually tried to release the entirety, uh, the entirety of the Israelites as opposed to the able-bodied men alone uh, in the eighth plague, but the Lord was not done with him. And then, finally, the tenth plague, uh, the death of the firstborn, Exodus 11.1, 1, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the hearts of his officials, so that I may do these miraculous signs of mine among them. All right, so that's Exodus 11, 1, Exodus 10, 27, Exodus 10, 1, Exodus 9, 12, and um, uh, yeah, those are the four plagues in which God hardened Pharaoh's heart. So in six out of the 10 plagues, Pharaoh's heart was hardened of his own volition. In four of them, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And the reason for that 
is expressed quite clearly in Romans 9, uh, in which, you know, it's explicitly written, I raise you up for this reason so that I may display my power in you and that my name may be proclaimed in the whole earth. So the plagues weren't random. They proved that the Egyptian pantheon was impotent, didn't exist. And instead, God, the one true God, is greater. This was accomplished through, in part, God hardening Pharaoh's heart. So what of today's text? God has done the same thing again. He is the one who hardened the hearts of the people of these city-states so that they would be they would they would pick a fight with Israel and so that they would be completely destroyed without mercy. So this can be scary for you if you've not heard the whole counsel of God. Okay? Sure, I mean I, you know, I I have some I have some reformed tendencies myself, but I know what it's like. You know, I used to, you know, growing up I was far more, you know, Arminian in my theology and then just the more I studied scripture, the more I developed some some Calvinistic tendencies, but I I don't I don't often get along with my fellow Calvinists, mostly because they all base their brand of Calvinism on something that Calvin would have objected to himself. And, and they, they, I think, completely botch Romans 9, like all the time. So this can be discomforting. And you can face this passage and these passages that clearly evidence the sovereignty of God and that he does harden some people's hearts. Maybe as an, as an evangelist in a place like Seattle, you look at a place like this and you could see how Christianity is totally outnumbered. Only like 15%, according to Census Bureau data, would even proclaim you know, belief in God. And that 15% includes a lot of people who are not, they don't hold the belief systems that are compatible with one another. You know, that, that includes modern Judaism that denies Jesus as Lord, that includes brands of Catholicism that, that, uh, that are unbiblical, and, and includes Mormonism, which is not Christianity. And so you can look at the, the numbers of a place like this and you can ask like, well, God, have you hardened the hearts of the people around us? And the truth is we don't know. We've been called to make disciples. We know that the Holy Spirit is with us always, even at the very end of the age. But it is up to God to sort who is a true believer and who's not in the end. It's our job to cast the seed of the gospel and we've been called here. I know that because we're here. But then you might also look at a text like this and it can be unsettling because you might think to yourself, what if I'm, what if I'm like an Edomite? What if I'm like Pharaoh? What if I'm like one of the, the, the residents of, of Debir who, who, you know, is, is predestined to, you know, to be against God? This is called double predestination. Like God would predetermine not only that some people would be saved, but by default, my Calvinist friends, you can't avoid this. You believe double predestination by default, just buck up and own it. Okay. You believe then that God by default doesn't save others. So by default, unavoidably, inextricably, incontrovertibly, that means that God creates some people for the purpose of sending them to hell, according to that particular brand of Calvinism. Okay. So buck up. If you're a Calvinist, own it. You believe that. What I believe is that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. What I believe is that the majority of the plagues, God allowed Pharaoh's heart to be hardened of his own volition. What I see Bible-wide from Esau to Pharaoh to Judas to the Antichrist to the Pharisees of Jesus' day is that people whose hearts were hardened were already hard of their own volition to begin with. Esau was not exactly the best guy in the world. Neither was Jacob. He was kind of a trickster. Judas had every opportunity to repent more than anybody else in the world. 
The Pharisees saw miracles and demanded more, refusing to believe, ultimately committing blasphemy. Their hearts were hardened of their own volition before God hardened their hearts. So the only one in whom I believe total predestination applies would be the Antichrist, and quite arguably Judas as well. In every other regard, we don't have the authority to say that. This is the difference, one of the critical differences that I've seen uh, between like more evangelistic Calvinists and, and Calvinists of another breed, that we would just decide for ourselves, God has hardened their hearts, wipe the dust off our feet and walk away. And to my Calvinist brothers, bro, can't you get like some dust on your pumas? You know, can't you like try maybe more than once <laughs> to bring up the gospel, to make disciples, to persuade people? We try to persuade people. This is Second Corinthians. You know this. But too often, my Calvinist friends will just decide, God's hardened them, God's hardened them. You're basically saying, like, God hates them all. So it, it affects your evangelistic view. You don't have the authority to say that God has hardened the hearts of the people around you the way that he did Pharaoh, the way that he, the way that he did Esau, the way that he did Judas, the way that he did the Pharisees, the way that he willed the Antichrist, the beast, if you will. You don't have the authority to say that. Instead, you have a commission to share the gospel with them. And then God's the one who sorts out what's real and what's not in the end. But... This becomes all the more personal when you look at a passage like this and you ask yourself the question, am I one of those people? No one who's ever had his heart hardened by God, not Esau, not Pharaoh, not the Pharisees, not Judas, certainly not the Antichrist, has ever asked that question. Judas exhibited remorse, it seems, after having betrayed Jesus, but no one asks the question, oh, wait, am I in defiance of God. The whole point of this verse in Joshua, the whole point is they didn't ask that question because God hardened their hearts. And because their hearts were hardened, they never asked the question, uh-oh, wait a minute, maybe I'm on the wrong side of this battle. Maybe I need to get on God's side. Rahab's heart was not hardened. And her family was saved, at least in the uh, at least in the vital sense, by extension. Uh, but everybody else had hard hearts, and so the fact that you might even ask this question at all: Am I one of those who has just been born to die as a demonstration of God's righteous wrath upon sin? That you would ask that question, to me, indicates it's not the case for you, because no one who has a heart that is hardened by God throughout Scripture ever bothers to do that. So would you take a moment and would you do that? See your reflection in the peoples of Canaan, whom God conquered, who were exercising sin for generations, for 400 years. See the coming wrath of God as prophesied in Revelation. And see Rahab as an Old Testament precedent, even through whom the New Testament Salvation will be made possible. She's a part of the genealogy that would lead to Jesus. I mean, you can't, you can't make this stuff up. It's so incredible. So if you're struggling with this, if this passage rocks your world, good. That's the Holy Spirit of God at work on your heart. And by that Spirit, confess Jesus is Lord. No one whose heart has been hardened has wondered if his heart was hard. Rather, he looked defiantly at God, blasphemy, stuck his middle finger up at the Holy Spirit's drawing, reviled the Holy Spirit, and thought himself just all the way into the wrath of God.
So be glad that your heart is not hardened. Confess Jesus as Lord. Be saved today.